Warning. This episode of The Saucer Life involves alien abduction claims and references the types of physical and sexual effects that usually accompany these events. There's not really much of it in here, but I wanted to make sure you knew in case that stuff squicks you out or something. On with the show. I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. This is before and after CETO. So, this started off in my head as a quick return and sort of look at the books mentioned in our CETO's New Friends episode uh, about Leah Haley, the author of CETO's New Friends. But as I looked deeper into her books and her experiences and some of the research and work that surrounded them, I quickly realized that there's more than enough to focus on for today without you know being just sort of a, hey, these are some neat books sort of thing. So in 1993, Haley published a book called Lost Was the Key, and in 2003, a decade later, Unlocking Alien Closets, Abductions, Mind Control, and Spirituality. In between those two books, her life changed considerably, as did her interpretations of what was happening to her. Let's look at her story and its implications for the wider world of UFO and abduction research in the 1990s and the 21st century. So I think what we're going to do is look at Haley's story as she presents it in her two autobiographical works, Lost Was the Key and Unlocking Alien Closets. Haley's alien awakening came about through conversations with her family in 1990, in which she was reminded of some strange encounters they'd experienced as children. Her brother puts her in contact with Bud Hopkins and his Intruders Foundation, and as she reads the newsletters that they send her, her memories start to get triggered and activated by what she is seeing. One article mentioned that at the end of the alien abduction experience, a woman woke up and found herself suspended about six inches above her bed. Suddenly, I remembered a strange dream I had in October. The main differences between my dream and the story I read about this woman was that I was a couple of feet above my bed rather than six inches, and I was held up by a beam of bright light. All sorts of thoughts came to mind. Did this mean I could have been abducted by aliens? Maybe my dreams hadn't been dreams at all. And if they weren't dreams, that meant the aliens were still coming to get me. They were able to follow me from one state to another when we moved, and they were able to block my memory of the encounters so I didn't know what they were doing to me. Oh no, please God, I prayed. I don't want it to be true. So this was a reluctant thing for her. She didn't want to relive these experiences, but she was compelled to find some answers. The dreams she was having were becoming intrusive, were just sort of appearing. And that's going to be a recurring thing throughout the story is, is that she is she's constantly being sort of bombarded by voices and, and images and visions and dreams and things like that. There were several events in her childhood that she that she experienced, and she discussed her first actual abduction experience at a 2004 MUFON event. It was a local chapter MUFON event uh, th at which she spoke, and this is up on YouTube, so I, um, I, I stole part of it. Here's her first abduction experience. 
probably in the late 70s or maybe early 80s. I did not document the date when it occurred. But what happened there was that I woke up one morning and I recalled that during the night I had been aboard a spacecraft that had um, a circular room in it and I was lying on a platform flat on my back, paralyzed, and I had medical experiments conducted on me by a group of off-white colored entities that looked basically like that. Had big black eyes, just two little holes for a nose. I couldn't remember a mouth at all. Four fingers instead of five. And I remembered that encounter consciously, but in, in the context of my life, I could not accept it as reality. I would not accept it as reality. I never, ever in the late 70s or early 80s heard of anybody else in the whole world having had abduction experiences other than um, I, there was a Pascagoula, a Pascagoula incident that I'd heard a little bit about, but on the news, just a couple of sentences, but I didn't know any details about it. So she wasn't someone who was steeped in UFO lore. She wasn't someone who'd been reading a lot of alien books. Now, her, her brother had sort of been more into it than, than she was, and, and it was through conversations with him that she you know, began to recall all of this. But her life was not a, a flying saucer life. So when she contacted the Intruders Foundation, Bud Hopkins Outfit, they had sent her some newsletters and also information on hypnotherapists who worked with their organization um, or other organizations such as MUFON who could help her fully recover her memories. Giant asterisk there about fully recovering memories, but um, I won't get into my problems with hypnosis right now. The closest to her was John Carpenter, not the film director, uh, the hypnotist, John Carpenter, who was in Springfield, Missouri, which actually wasn't that close by. It's quite a ways from where she was living the t in the t at the time in northern Alabama. And after some hemming and hawing, she uh, makes the decision to visit Carpenter. The information she'd gotten said that he dealt with dozens and dozens of people who'd had the same sorts of experiences that she was worried she might have had. And at the very least, as a, as a therapist, she says in her book, and I think this is a sort of memorable turn of phrase, that um, if necessary, he could declare her insane and have her put in the hospital where she could get the help she needed. So she's at the point where she's needing some answers about what's going on and what's happening in her life. She, she's also experiencing disturbing alien-related dreams, and she's eager to see Carpenter and hopefully get some answers. But because of her work schedule, she's teaching accounting at the time at the, the local university. She really doesn't have a lot of free time to make a multi-day trip to Missouri to do this. So she has to wait for a while. And in the meantime, she's you know, sharing her experiences with her husband, who's trying to be supportive, and um, her friend Judith, whose husband was an Air Force officer at a nearby Air Force base. And Judith listened politely and, with Leah's permission, um, told her husband about these experiences. And around this time, also, Haley began to experience strangeness of a more terrestrial nature. One unsettling incident occurred in a restaurant. One weekday evening in September, my husband phoned to tell me he was coming home for the night. As there was very little food in the house, I suggested we go out for dinner. 
Mike agreed to meet our daughters and me at a restaurant in town. We lingered over dinner since it is rare for all four of us to eat a meal together. Across from our booth sat two men with short hair. They were dressed in casual but neat attire. Both of them had lean but strong-looking bodies, indicating the men obviously made a point of staying in top physical condition. I probably wouldn't have noticed them, but every time I looked up from my plate, I discovered they were staring at my family. Whenever I looked up, they looked down. Kelly also noticed their behavior. She kicked Laura under the table and said those men were giving her the creeps. Although our dinner was lengthy, the two men were still in the restaurant when we left. She began to notice things out of place in her home, and in general, to me as an outside observer, seems to have become a bit paranoid. In March of 1991, when she's got spring break from college, uh, where she's teaching, she and her brother go to see John Carpenter for several days, and Haley undergoes a number of hypnosis sessions and, and talks to one of Carpenter's other subjects about their experiences. Upon returning home, Haley kept up these conversations with her fellow experiencers over the phone, which also were the occasion for some more, you know, terrestrial oddness. One day I found an abductee whom John suggested I contact. He felt I should hear about her experiences with people who appeared to be government agents. Shortly after we started talking, we heard an almost deafening click on the line, followed by constant clicks as if someone were trying to disconnect us. Perhaps the most interesting encounter Haley had at this time was with the husband of one of her accounting students, and the husband invited her, invited Haley, to see the space shuttle Endeavor, and had also had his wife give her a, a, a NASA mission patch for some reason. She had no idea why this man had contacted her and was very disturbed when he began to mention things that she had not talked about to her students. Here, we see what occurs when she tries to get out of going to see the space shuttle Endeavor with him. I really do appreciate it, though. You're going to all this trouble to set things up. I wondered if he caught my pun about a setup. It seemed he didn't. Well, it really wasn't too much trouble, he replied. I knew you'd be interested in seeing the shuttle, since you're writing a book about space phenomena. I wasn't writing a book about anything at the time, but I remembered the excuse I gave students and colleagues concerning the nature of my trip to Springfield over spring break. What makes you think the book I intend to write has anything to do with this sort of stuff? I asked. Well, Ginger said that you told some students you intended to write a book about space phenomena and that the government didn't want the public to know much about that subject. I haven't told any student anything about this particular subject matter, I emphasized. I wondered what this man was up to. Mike and Judith were still the only people with whom I had discussed UFOs. So Mike, you'll recall here, is Leah Haley's first husband, who was bewildered by all of this, but was doing his best to be supportive of her. So at this point, you should be seeing some kind of a pattern, right? She's recovering these memories of supposedly alien encounters, but at the same time, there's this ongoing campaign of, of maybe not harassment at this point, but certainly of annoyance and weirdness and creepiness. And at the same time, she began to have memories of prior experiences, in her words, quote, creeping into her consciousness. These weren't hypnotic experiences or dreams. She describes them as flashbacks. And on top of this, she also continued to have what she called lucid dreams. Uh, here's an example of one. I woke up at approximately 3 a.m. and saw a bright light shining through my bedroom window. I was too tired to get up to see what it was. I told myself it was probably brightness from the moon, but if the light emanated from a spaceship instead, the aliens could come on in and get me. I was ready for them. But I soon fell asleep and dreamed the aliens put Mike in a trance. 
They tried to do the same with me, but I fought against their powers because I wanted to remember everything. The aliens had a different idea, however. They floated a green sphere into the room to control me. Two nights later, I dreamed I was pulled out of bed by a great force, like that of a powerful magnet or a giant vacuum. I sped through the air and ended up in what I first thought was a spaceship that was whirling around. When the whirling stopped, I found myself standing in a room decorated with antiques. Spotting a telephone on a table, I told myself the room could not be a part of a spaceship. But then an alien took my hand, led me to another room, and made me lie down. I could see nothing clearly in this room. It looked as if it were filled with dense mist or fog. I could barely see the forms of several creatures moving about. They began to perform painful gynecological procedures on me. I screamed out for them to stop. An alien told me it would be okay, that I wouldn't remember anything. Then I lost consciousness. Later, I found myself back at home, but not in my bed. Feeling groggy, I was unable to determine exactly where I was. It seemed I was in Kelly's bedroom or in the hall just outside. The next morning, I woke up in my own bed. At this point, she decides she needs more answers to the questions that are plaguing her. What is happening? What's with the people following her around? Why did the guy wonder to see the space shuttle? Are these dreams? And if they're dreams, what do they mean? If they're not dreams, are they indicators that something is happening to her? Are the experience she's having real in some way? So she decides more hypnotic regression is the only way to get the answers she needs. So she goes back to Springfield, Missouri, and back to John Carpenter. But when she gets back to Springfield, the strange happenings continue, and indeed, the pace seems to pick up. At the airport, on the bus to the shuttle bus van thing, from the airport to our hotel, she encounters a man who seems to know she's in town on a matter of extraterrestrials. And during her hypnosis sessions with Carpenter, a more earthly military tone begins to creep into her experiences. This is a, a seminal encounter or experience or whatever it is she had that she will come to call the conference room encounter. It begins with her outside in a sort of clearing in the woods or, or on in some sort of natural area. There are stars in the sky. What are you wearing? I don't remember. Okay. What happens next? I don't think this can happen, I said, becoming quite agitated, not wanting to remember the scene taking place in front of me. Well, tell us what you think is happening, John insisted. You don't have to understand it, just report what you see happening. There are men with guns. They're in the clearing. They're getting something out of a helicopter or something. All right, take a good close look at the helicopter or something. What do you see? It is a helicopter. People are getting out of it. They've got weapons, big machine gun-like weapons. They're wearing green uniforms. Any hats? John asked. There's one with a hat, but he doesn't have on the green uniform. He has on a blue hat, shirt, and pants. What are you doing? John wanted to know. They're making me get into the helicopter. But you must fight them or try to run away, don't you? No, I'm afraid of all their guns. What did you hear that made you know you had to go with them? I don't remember them saying anything. They just came out of the helicopter, grabbed me, and shoved me inside. So, is there anyone else with you besides the men with the guns? No. The man with the blue shirt seems to be in charge. He said I'm a troublemaker, and they're going to shut me up. They have me sitting down on the floor of the helicopter. It's cold and hard. The men are sitting around me with guns. Did they keep those guns pointed at you? I, I don't remember that. I, I said something to the man in charge, and, and they got mad and shoved me down. What did you say to him? I told him he was an asshole and I wasn't going to let him shut me up. 
Now, maybe you notice what you're wearing as you feel the cold, hard floor of the helicopter. There's nothing on my arms. The men grabbed me by the arms on both sides. I told them to get their nasty hands off me, but they just kept on grabbing me. Did they do anything to hurt you? I was struggling with them as I was coming off the helicopter. I, I don't understand why they're taking me here. It's cold. There's a man on each side of me holding my arms tightly. They're, they're taking me into a building. Now you can see the door open, and you can catch a glimpse right away of what's inside. I'm looking at the people in there. I saw men seated along the left side of the conference room table. The man in the blue uniform was standing to my right. A man decorated with military pins was standing at the opposite end of the table. What do you notice right now? Somebody's giving me a shot in my right arm. It feels like a tetanus shot. Don't you fight and scream? The guys in the uniforms are still holding me tightly. What do they look like? You must be able to see them a little more clearly now. Do they have long hair and bushy eyebrows or... No, no, they, they look like military people, real short hair. See clearly now. See if any of them look familiar. They, they don't look familiar. That's fine. Notice exactly where you are at this moment. Whether you're standing there... I was standing there when they gave me a shot, but then they shoved me into a chair. What do you seem to notice after you're shoved into the chair? I'm just feeling dizzy. So you're sitting on the chair, feeling a little dizzy. Look around you now as you sit there and notice what your attention is drawn to. What do you focus on? I, I can't. I'm feeling too dizzy. All right. What do you hear? Listen carefully. There must be some kind of talking or interaction with somebody somewhere, or is it totally silent? The man who was in the helicopter said something first. He said, here she is. She's a cocky little bitch. Then someone on the other side of the room said, well, we'll just take care of that. And then what do you hear? I don't remember. It's cold in here. Why is it cold for you? Don't you have on your coat? I'm not cold anymore. And how is it that you're not cold anymore? Someone came up behind me and put a jacket around my shoulders. Does the jacket touch the rest of your clothes? I, I don't think I had anything else on except maybe some panties, but I, I must have had some clothes on. What do you hear now? There's a man talking to me. He's telling me I haven't seen anything. He's not very nice. How is he not very nice? His tone of voice. Do you see him, or do you just hear him? I don't see him because I'm so dizzy. I'm leaning my head over. He says, you didn't see a spaceship. Do you understand? You did not see a spaceship. I told him that I knew it was a spaceship, and I didn't care what he said. I knew what it was. And how did he react to that statement of yours? He said to the man in blue, yeah, I see what you mean. Then I told them the only way they're going to shut me up is to kill me. Say that again? I told them the only way they're going to shut me up is to kill me. How do they react to that statement? He said if I didn't cooperate, if it was necessary, that's exactly what they'd do. Okay, that was a little long. I'm sorry about that, but I think it's important to experience, at least at the very least, as a manifestation of something that would become a significant subset of the abduction world in the 1990s, the idea of milabs or military abductions. There were a number of people who were involved in investigating and promoting this idea, such as Melinda Leslie and Helmut Lammer. 
The basic idea was that elements of the military were using alien abduction phenomena as a cover for their own abductions and experimentation, or in some cases, you have a collaboration between human military elements and alien elements. We'll be doing a full-on Millabs episode down the road a piece, but in Leah Haley's stories, we're seeing this crossover and this conference room experience. I mean, take away the helicopters and, and take away the, the guns and the soldiers and, and some of the trappings and look at the, the, the sort of essence of what's going on here. And this is very much a man in black sort of thing. If, if you were to take this story and, and again, take its, its, its elements and drop it down anywhere from like 1953 to a week last Tuesday, this is very much a man in black sort of thing. Meanwhile, Things stay strange in Springfield where Leah Haley is, is undergoing this hypnosis. Her weird experiences continue and I think kind of intensify. The next morning, the sound of a man's voice in the adjacent room awakened me. The voice sounded vaguely familiar, so I put my ear to the wall and strained to hear what he was saying. I listened for what seemed like a long time, but I was able to make out only a few words dispersed throughout the conversation. Memory implant. I tried several times, but about places she lived, Craston, Tuscaloosa. Will do. Well, we got most of it. Four digits, U.S. government. I've served you well. Hearing only one voice, I assumed the man was talking to someone over the phone. It finally occurred to me the voice sounded like that of the salesman from Nashville I'd met at the airport. He mentioned Craston and Tuscaloosa, places I had lived. So I concluded the conversation was about me. She is understandably freaked out by this. She, she stays in Springfield a little while longer, has another hypnosis session, and then goes home. But she feels increasingly isolated and increasingly under threat. I felt, she wrote, if the military was so concerned about what I knew, I was probably being monitored constantly. I felt I no longer had any privacy, as if all my dignity had been stripped away. I felt like a naked, hunted animal with no place to hide. Her husband was doing his best to be supportive, but she feels she can no longer talk, really, to her friend Judith about her experiences. Judith turned on Haley when she accused the Air Force of knowing more than it was saying about UFOs. Judith's husband, you'll recall, was a Air Force officer, was an Air Force officer, rather, to be more grammatical about it, and she, um, and this was strange, at one point gives Leah a lecture about how Project Blue Book determined that UFOs were nothing to worry about. So Air Force officer's wife, who's friends with the abductee, shows up to a casual lunch with Project Blue Book talking points. It's, it's very strange. Not as strange as hearing the man's voice through the wall, not as strange as that conference room encounter. And to me, although she doesn't say it, not as strange as the way that her therapist seemed to be prompting her in, in just the right way to get the story that she wanted to tell out there. I will admit I am fiercely suspicious of hypnotists all the time. Now, she's living her life. She's back in Alabama. But her bizarre dreams and her sort of intrusive mental flashes continued. In one flash, I saw myself as an adult standing on a beach all alone. A military vessel set out in the ocean, seemingly shooting at something in the air. Then I heard someone call to me through a megaphone. In another flash, I saw a man wearing a gas mask, carrying a chalky-colored creature across his shoulder. The creature looked at me with fear in his eyes. 
Then I saw an airplane wobbling as if it were about to crash. Another flash showed a group of chalky-colored creatures coming down a ramp of a spaceship. In another, I saw a circle along with the message, The circle is unbroken. Another image revealed a spaceship which looked like two convergent saucers hovering in the air. Thin beams of light shining from its bottom formed a triangular configuration. The spaceship shot off, leaving pyramids where the light beams had been. And some of these flashes took on overtones of the Earth Changes talk that was so prevalent in paranormal circles during the 1980s and 1990s. We, we see this also when we looked at uh, Greta Woodrow's stuff a few weeks, months ago, but Earth Changes are there as well. There was a mental flash seemingly painting a picture of our planet's destruction. Everything I saw in the background was brown. The sky, the plants, the water. I saw all types of animals dropping dead one by one. I saw a father and mother and their two children on hands and knees trying to crawl over the trunk of a dead fallen tree to get to the water nearby. They seemed too near death to ever reach the water, but even if they did, its poisons would kill them. Again, I witnessed the event from afar, this time with mixed emotions. I felt fortunate that I did not have to suffer this type of pain, yet I felt torn that I could do nothing to save this family or to alleviate their suffering. I think I'm going to have to do an Earth Changes episode at some point, because who doesn't love Gordon Michael Scallion, comma, etc.? So she's perceiving these flashes as messages from unknown sources. That was the word she used or phrase she used, messages from unknown sources. And these messages would become less sort of obscure and vision-like and more coherent as time went on. The night of June 23rd, I experienced another mental flash, this one especially disturbing. While I was reading my Bible, a silent voice told me I am needed to help spread the word about the existence and visitations of the aliens through both speaking and writing. I was told the creatures will be visiting Earth more frequently and in greater numbers, and humans need to be prepared. Oh no, I silently argued, not me, no way. I can't get involved with this sort of thing. The military and government agents who've been monitoring me would make my life pure hell. It would bring suffering to my family. I can't do it. But the mental flash continued. It told me the creatures would try to prevent anyone from doing any substantial harm to me, although I would be ridiculed and persecuted. This is necessary, it added. Someone must inform the public. We need your help with this. I tried to ignore the message and told myself I must indeed be going crazy. I had always heard that hearing voices was a sign of insanity. Perhaps I needed to engage in normal activities more often so my sanity would be restored. So I'm sure I don't have to tell you this sounds very strange. She's sitting there reading her Bible when a voice comes out of nowhere telling her she needs to be basically an evangelist for the aliens who are coming to find her and that she'll be persecuted for spreading this message. But she needs to be an apostle. I mean, they don't say the word apostle, but boy, it sure sounds like she's being asked to be one of the 12,000 or so alien apostles out there. It's just a little too perfect. And I'm not saying that as a way to denigrate her experiences or to, you know, say, well, of course, this really didn't happen the way she says, because I mean, gosh, it's just too perfect. I'm saying it's so perfect. It's it's managed. It's produced and not by hers is, is the, the impression I get from the book. This is somebody 
creating an environment you know, and, and sort of choosing their moment. And if they're observing her, they're, oh, she's reading her Bible she, or she reads her Bible usually at you know nine o'clock at night or something like that. Let's turn on the magic voice. Who's turning on the magic voice? I don't know. But things will get strange throughout the book. And it sort of goes on like this, cycling between her experiences at home, hypnosis sessions, and the increasingly intrusive voices and messages she's receiving. There's one incident she relates that I think is important to share. It came up during a hypnosis session with John Carpenter and involves a UFO crash on a beach. And from what, from what she's able to recall, she was on the ship that crashed and remembered it, well, hypnotically remembered it, which is you know, obviously different, in fairly vivid detail. She remembers the, the craft wobbling and her hitting her head during the crash. And she remembers exiting the downed craft through a big opening in the side of it, walking out on the beach. It doesn't feel like a dream, she explains. It feels more like a memory. But she's got questions about the entire experience. I went back to my hotel room that night, more upset and confused than ever, and spent most of the night trying to make sense of everything. I could not understand how an individual could be involved in an event that important and then completely forget about it. If it did happen, when? I tried to remember times in my life when I had physical symptoms that might be related to a head injury. On several occasions, I had severe headaches, and there was a period of time in which I became dizzy in the grocery store or whenever I stood up for long. I also remembered my dentist's concern over my teeth being loose for no apparent reason, but those problems eventually went away by themselves, and I forgot about them. Therefore, I could not pinpoint an exact date. I had always tried to go on with my daily activities, even when I had felt bad. So I could understand how I could be in a crash and not pay too much attention to a resulting headache. But I could not understand how I could have gotten back home from the beach without anyone even noticing my absence. Traveling from the beach to almost every place I had ever lived would have required at least a couple hours time, even by air. However, my family had gone to the beach several times for a vacation. Could I have been abducted one of those times? There was another puzzling question. If the incident did occur, why didn't the military eliminate me on the spot? Was it because they gave me drugs that were meant to erase my memory of the incident permanently? If so, that could explain why I was followed, why I was watched in restaurants, why I heard odd noises on my telephones, why so many other unexplained things began to happen when I started investigating my possible alien encounters. Maybe the government was worried about just how much I would remember and what I would do with the information. Perhaps my knowledge of this incident was what the military officer meant when he said I knew too damn much. As we reach the end of the book, other things have happened to her. A piece of metal works its way out of her gums and, when studied, appears to be a, a common piece of brass, or a piece of common brass, however you want to say it. She still has more questions than answers and is harboring a great deal of resentment toward the government officials she believes are involved with her torment. She dubs them OMAGs, which stands for Obnoxious Military and Government Scoundrels. This may be the most labored acronym ever. Now, the book does close on something of a hopeful note, which is nice. The alien abductions, mental flashes, and harassment by military government agents continue. I've learned to accept the alien abductions and am not frightened by them. My biggest complaint against the aliens is that they too often do not allow me to recall the encounter consciously. I have, however, been given an explanation for this. One night, as I verbally protested the blockage of my memories, I was told, you are being monitored too closely by our opponents. 
your remembering would be detrimental to our mission. Being told that a group of my abductors has opponents led me to believe there's a great conflict going on in the universe. Although I could be wrong, based on my continuing experiences, I now believe this conflict is between good and evil in the struggle for our souls. I have also come to believe that both good and evil are at every level, among aliens, among humans, among our government and military. Believing there are good people hidden somewhere within our government and military agencies, I still harbor the hope, or is it a fantasy, that someday one of these people will approach me and voluntarily share information that will give me a better understanding of the truth. For the truth is what I am after, and will continue to seek. So, as we get to the end of the book, we finally have some kind of master narrative for all of this. Whereas, you know, your, your typical contactees would have, would have put something like this much closer to the beginning. And then the Space Brothers said they were in conflict with another group. You know, no, we, we get it at the end, which is kind of nice. We, you, you kind of get this, this unfolding. You're as confused as Leah Haley is as you're reading this book, or you're, you're, as, con, you're as confused as Leah Haley was when she was experiencing these things as you're, as you're reading the book. So unsurprisingly, following publication of Lost Was the Key, Haley's profile grew. She began to speak at, at, at events and things like that. And uh, her story was um, dissected in the pages of Omni Magazine. We should do a whole Omni Magazine episode sometime. A J.S. Rail, R-A-Y-L, examined Haley's story, talked to people Haley knew, and somewhat rudely used people's real names that Haley had been careful to anonymize in her book. This was Rail's conclusion. Despite the fact that some UFO researchers have called the Haley case one of the most intriguing and apparently best documented abductions ever, without more data, it's impossible to know what Haley has experienced and why there is no hard evidence and no conclusive circumstantial evidence that proves abduction by extraterrestrial biological entities. Given the caveat that this investigation remains incomplete, there is also no conclusive evidence that Haley has been monitored or harassed by military operatives. I, I can see it now. Um, J.S. Rail goes to the, the Air Force and says, Did you harass Leah Haley? Oh, shoot. Yeah, you caught us. Um, we wouldn't have said anything, but, you know, if you ask us directly if we've harassed somebody, we have to tell you. It's like asking somebody, you, you know, if you're a cop, you have to tell me when you're trying to rob a bank with somebody. It's, 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 not, a great, it's not a great examination. Um, if I remember, I will put a link to the, uh, the issue of Omni This Is in the show notes. You can take a look at it for yourself. Haley's story was controversial in the UFO field, particularly because of the government involvement overtones and the manner in which the aliens seem to be a positive influence. And, and that's, that's an aspect of it that carries over um, to some of her other work, uh, as we saw when we looked at Cito's new friends a few weeks ago. And that certainly didn't help the controversy to die down. Cito's new friends came a couple years after Lost was the key. So, Unlocking Alien Closets, her second book, came out in 2003, a decade after Lost was the key, and is basically a continuation of that book. And it starts off on a high note which with a very creepy story of someone trying to recruit Leah Haley into the Ramtha cult. And I am not going to do an episode on the Ramtha cult because those people will come and get me. Um, and continues by discussing her correspondence and friendship with fellow experiencer Carla Turner, author of a number of great books. 
which we will also be doing. I will do a Carla Turner episode. I will not do a Ramtha episode. So Haley's communications with the beings were after, you know, 1992 and so on, um, becoming more informative. I wanted to know who had abducted me and why. I sat down in my bedroom and allowed myself to go into a meditative state while I mentally questioned where the aliens were from. After some time, I was startled by a telepathic message that they were from Sirius. Immediately, I began to see images in my head of a wide variety of beautiful flowers. The colors were vibrant. Some plants were exotic ones I had never seen before. This is our gift to you, the silent communicators said. We know how much you love flowers. We know everything about you. After the flower images ceased, I mentally asked why I had abduction experiences evidenced by bruises, knots, and other physical marks that they would not let me remember. The response was that I was monitored too closely, and my remembering would be detrimental to their mission if their opponents were to acquire too much information about what they were doing to me. Long-time saucer fiends probably had their ears perk up at the mention of Sirius. It's long been a star system that has appeared in ufological books as well as in various occult contexts over the years. Yes, we'll be doing an episode about Sirius at some point. The voice also tells her to explore the beach incident further, the one where she was on board a crashed UFO, and the voice tells her where this occurred, giving her the name of a beach which, after some research, she learns is near Gulf Breeze, Florida, where there had been a pretty profoundly important UFO flap shortly before. Yes, we'll be doing a Gulf Breeze episode at some point. During this time, she continued to get these communications from the visitors, or, or whoever, and also began to experience sort of visual communications that she describes as virtual reality experiences. These experiences become more frequent as time goes on, and it became clear that, that someone was trying to influence her thinking. So I think the best way to move through unlocking alien closets is to look, look at a few episodes uh, here and there that sort of stood out to me, rather than, than the more detailed way we went through um, Lost was the key. The first, following up on the voice telling her to go to the beach where she was on the crashed UFO, was a 1992 expedition Leah Haley took with two retired Air Force officers, including Don Ware, who at that time was the Eastern Director for MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. They went to Eglin Air Force Base, where they were able to roam around pretty freely. After a while, we came to a location that gave me a strange feeling, as if I'd been there before. It looked like the crash site. I paused for a few moments while my mind replayed the crash sequence. Still, I could not accept the idea that I had been aboard a craft with aliens when our military had shot it down. The story sounded like the plot of a science fiction movie. A mile or so past that spot, on the southern portion of Eglin Air Force Base, we came to an odd-looking piece of equipment. It looked to me like a giant kitchen timer. Don and Bob were very interested in it, but said they didn't know what it was. I started walking toward it to take a picture, but Don and Bob warned me not to get too close. I stopped then and took photographs. I also photographed radar devices and various buildings that we passed and a black Chinook helicopter that flew by. We walked for what seemed like miles before we saw any people. Along one segment of beach, a few military men fished. About halfway through our hike, we came across a medic truck. I thought it odd to see a medic truck parked on a beach. The medics were sitting there, doing nothing. They seemed out of place. Don and Bob approached them. I stayed back, closer to the water. 
When Don and Bob returned, they told me the medics did not know why they had been sent there. They were just to go and wait. I joked that perhaps the medics were there because the authorities knew I was walking on that beach and they did not think I was in good enough physical condition to make the 13-mile hike. I barely did make it. Don and Bob almost had to drag me the last mile or so. Yeah, able to roam around pretty freely. Oh, look, there's a giant weird device that looks like a kitchen timer. Oh, look, there's some medics just hanging around for no reason. Oh, look, there's a black helicopter. Now, I say pretty freely because later, Haley will attempt to return, and her experience is a bit different. After the break, we will see what happens. Next time, well, this is the plan anyway, something a little different. It's going to be Flying Saucer Movie Night with a couple films that you may not have seen and maybe not have even heard of. They are the 1968 classic, The Bamboo Saucer, classic, imagine that in heavy sarcasm quotes, Bamboo Saucer from 1968, and Supersonic Saucer from 1956, which is a, a as far as I can tell, a weird little English thing. Um, at some point, I will be watching these, and I will be sort of on Twitter tweeting about them as I watch them. Um, I think I've found a source for some some digitized versions that aren't uh, that aren't um, too difficult to find. I think they're up on archive.org. So watch uh, watch Twitter for that. Twitter's easier to do these things on. I might even try to figure out one of those watch along room sort of things if anybody wants to watch it with me. This is a great opportunity for me to be sitting in an online room by myself waiting for people to show up. Doesn't sound humiliating at all. Anyway, um, keep an eye on the uh, the social media feeds for information about that event. If none of that works out for whatever reason, I will probably talk about a contactee. You can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. Thank you very much to those who've donated in the past. It's much appreciated, especially during these uh, these times where where things are a little more uncertain, so money is a little harder to part with. I thank you very much for um, the uh, the generosity you've shown, and it's how I've bought my copies of Leah Haley's books that we're looking at today. So um, you can blame the donors for this episode, really. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, or you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blank, Michigan, 48480. The Saucer Life is available anywhere where you can find podcasts and some places where you can't. So, Later, as we said, Haley will go back to the beach. A sign at the entrance warned people to stay out of the area, indicated that unexploded munitions were present and that trespassers would be prosecuted. A trail of footprints extended just inside the fenced area. After that, we saw only bird tracks and ATV tracks. After we walked a short distance, a black helicopter with no visible markings flew over our heads. We passed dome structures and a building encased in a sandbank. We walked to the top of the sand dunes and photographed them, being careful to follow in the tracks of the ATVs, just in case the warning about the unexploded munitions were true. A small plane flew over, and several motorboats buzzed past us along the coast. After walking about two hours, Mark said, Uh-oh, there's a four-wheeler coming toward us. Follow me. 
We went behind some dunes and crouched down as low as we could. Sand ground into my knees. The wind was blowing hard, making it difficult to hear, but eventually I heard the vehicle. He sees us, Mark said. He's with the Air Force. You might as well stand up. We nervously stood up and turned toward the stern-faced man. He coldly asked for identification. We truthfully told him we hadn't brought any with us. He asked what we're doing there. Exploring, Mark explained. The man told us to leave the beach immediately, in the same direction from which we had come. Mark asked if we could just continue walking on to Fort Walton Beach. He replied, no, go back the way you came. Mark boldly asked if we could eat our lunch first. No, leave immediately, or I'll have to cite you. Mark then asked the man if he would give us a ride. With no sense of humor, the man retorted, no. Mark and I reluctantly turned around and started retracing our tracks. Another uniformed policeman on a four-wheeler arrived, and the two men stayed near us to make sure we actually left. I felt that my main goal had been accomplished and my theory confirmed. It seemed that Don, Bob, and I had been given the privilege of investigating the 13-mile stretch of beach two years prior by someone who had the authority to grant that privilege. That person had been willing to allow us to acquire the information we needed to further educate the public about UFOs. When I returned with Mark in 1994, those in authority had not known beforehand we were coming. Why had we been allowed access to the crash site the first time? I believe it was because those who had allowed it had wanted the public to know that our military had the capability to shoot down alien craft were they to pose a threat. Also, you know, it was two former Air Force people who had gone with her. If I were really paranoid, I'd implicate MUFON in the weirdness, since one of those former Air Force people was a MUFON official. I mean, I am that paranoid, but stay tuned for more about my paranoia. But this is strange. The, the first time they're able to go and walk on the beach and take pictures of of, of black helicopters, and uh, and this time they, they get kicked off. And they didn't even find anything that looked like a kitchen timer. By the way, what was that thing that looked like a kitchen timer. Well, it wasn't anything alien. It turns out when a picture of the device is shown at a UFO talk in San Diego, Don, who was giving the presentation and who would, had been with Leah at the beach, is approached by an elderly man who says that uh, it's something he worked on years ago, and it was an electromagnetic pulse device that was uh, that was used as part of some some things that might be used for non-lethal weaponry. And we will be hearing more about some non-lethal weaponry later in this episode. But in the meantime, what we have so far with this, this trip to the beach, or these two trips to the beach, are hints of very human technology, non-lethal weapons, energy weapons that we know have been in production and development. Uh, the source Leah Haley cites in her book uh, about this EMP device is, is Aviation Week in Space Technology, which I used to read in the library when I was in high school because I was a complete nerd. So the next thing, in an effort to, I don't know, live up to, justify the disclaimer at the beginning of the episode, chapter 11 of Unlocking Alien Closets uh, begins with this. December brought a new series of weird experiences. On the first night of the month, I had a disturbing dream. Mike and I were talking to a new resident of Columbus who invited us to a party. We went. The party turned out to be a sex orgy. When the party ended, I put my peach-colored panties back on and went home. 
When I awoke the next morning, I was extremely sore, as if I really had been having sex for hours. How, I wondered, could a person get so sore when she was home alone, asleep all night? Yes, how? It's interesting, because in this, and there are some other encounters that uh, that I'm going to mention, um, the, the sexual encounters in Leah Haley's books are are very um, they're very I don't want to say I don't want to say normal they're they're very they're very terrestrial there are humans involved it's not just aliens and it's not just sort of clinically coldly reproductive it's it's sexual there, there's some instances and I, I won't relate them here where she's basically raped but raped by by a human looking person so it's it's different than some of the other abductee stuff that I've read and and sometimes it's just it's just bizarre such as this encounter I felt drugged or like a robot going through pre-programmed actions I was being forced to have intercourse with the actor who played Larry on As the World Turns he was a horrible sex partner I had no emotional response to the act but the man was enjoying it immensely some people who I felt had been observing us from another room came in and interrupted us before either of us reached orgasm. I noticed that the mouthpiece I wear at night and a second mouthpiece that I assumed belonged to my sex partner were lying on a table or stand nearby. I do not know what happened after that. Later, I consciously remembered what Larry really looked like. He did not look like the character from As the World Turns at all. He was younger, shorter, skinny, and had sandy brown hair. It had been too real and I had the awful feeling that the Larry memory was really a screen memory of an actual forced sex incident. It was too real. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, because this is very disturbing. This is, I mean, the strange thing is that the sort of screen memory of the the actor from As the World Turns, and no, I have no idea who he is or what he looks like, and, and I'm not going to spend the time to find out. But... It's very strange and, and related to the repeated visions of sexual encounters with some similar evidence of physical of evidence or effects. In addition to this, she also discusses the claims made by uh, Kathy O'Brien and Bryce Taylor in their mind control memoirs, Transformation of America and Thanks for the Memories, respectively. And she begins to wonder if she could be a mind controlled sex slave like these two women claim to be. I'm not going to go into O'Brien's and Taylor's claims extensively. Um, this, uh, I was going to say this is a family show. I'm not, this is, a, it, at some point, this might have been a family show. Um, it's a little outside our, our flying saucer purview. I do discuss the, the books extensively in my, uh, my book on conspiracy theories, cheap plug, so you can check it out there. But um, if I wasn't convinced of it before, as I'm reading this book, I'm increasingly convinced that a lot of what is going on with Haley was terrestrial, um, some combination of, of information from within her own mind and, and, or, and external influence. And what that ratio is, is um, unclear. The unfulfilling soap opera star sex scene vision is a great example of this, as is finding part of an EMP on device on the beach where she supposedly crashed in a, in a UFO. There's this, there's this blurring line between reality and unreality. And as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm getting confused and I'm getting concerned about what might actually be happening to Leah Haley. I can only imagine what Leah Haley was feeling or thinking about all of this at the time. And in 
amongst all of this, she's continuing to recount and, and to relive and to experience more of these auditory messages from whoever is sending them. And the messages are getting longer and more detailed, but they're also getting a little more metaphysical and a little less, I don't know, useful. There's more prophetic earth changes stuff, but there's also sort of descriptions of, of large grids that are, are supposed to represent levels of ascension through planes of consciousness and the need to find somebody who is who has a partner who is on the same spiritual plane as you. It just, and it, it sort of goes on like that. Um, the second book is about twice as long as the first. And I kind of wonder if it really needed to be. In addition to this, she's also being you know, possibly manipulated by, by people in her life as well. She details a relationship with a man named Greg and explains that every time she was around him, it seemed to be followed by various kinds of strangeness, more visions, more voices, and so on. Friends warned her that Greg was trouble. Um, for example, Greg gave her a fax machine as a gift, gift terrible gift for a, never get a friend a fax machine. That That's just terrible. And friends said, and, and you know, other abductee friends said, look, this could be a device, you know, it's a, it's a telephonic device. This could be a way to monitor you. And she said, ah, I, I understand that, but I really need a fax machine. So she took the fax machine. It was around this time, and probably not coincidentally, that her relationship with her husband, Mike, began to falter as well, and they eventually divorced. And and she was um, pretty much, the way she describes it, pretty much completely cut out of her ex-husband's life and, 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 and worse, her, uh, her daughter's lives as well. Her friendship with Greg ended eventually as well, and, and she began to wonder if he might have been a Cheops. That's another one of her acronyms. This one stands for Covert Human Experimentation Operatives. Uh, she finds a second husband, Mark Davenport, the Mark who would be um, on that second trip with her to the beach. And she would uh, be with Mark Davenport until his death in 2008. And she's continuing to hear these voices and she's continuing to get these messages and they get more disturbing. At one point, as she's driving, she hears a, a voice tell her, to drive her car off the road. Basically, she's got a voice in her head telling her to kill herself. Um, and she's able to resist it. She's able to sort of say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being controlled. I'm, somebody's attempting to control me. I'm not going to do it. And she does move gradually into this mindset that this voice, some of these voices that she's hearing might not be in her best interest. And her, uh, her second husband, Mark, is instrumental in um, in sort of leading her down that path. He'd done a lot of research into government mind control projects and things like that. Um, and so that's the direction in which she's moving. She isn't abandoning the, the extraterrestrial or, or, or sort of non-human explanation to these things, but she's balancing it out with more terrestrial things as well. A good chunk of this second book also is, is taken up with um, sort of refuting refutations that people made to to lost was the key uh, and her abduction experiences. She um, she spends most of a chapter uh, complaining about the the Omni expose that I mentioned earlier. But one gets the sense 
in some of these instances that Leah Haley might have been a bit too sensitive to what she perceived as as being slighted or insulted, even if it wasn't targeted at her directly. The R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company took out a two-page ad in the September 29, 1999 edition of the Seattle Weekly. Their Winston cigarette advertisement, prominently displayed on pages 64 and 65, featured a fake photo of a UFO with the caption, If aliens are smart enough to travel through space, why do they keep abducting the dumbest people on Earth? I wrote a letter in response and posted it on the internet. It stated, in part, I, as an abductee, am highly offended by R.J. Reynolds' insinuation that I am stupid. Most abductees are highly intelligent and many are well-educated. Richard Boylan and the late Carla Turner both reached the level of PhD, as did Scott, not his real name, who is a professor. I hold an MBA degree, graduating with a perfect 4.0 average on a 4.0 scale. I was one of the small percentage of people able to pass all four parts of the CPA exam on the first sitting. There are abductees who are medical doctors, attorneys, nurses, famous entertainers, engineers, scientists, successful business executives, teachers, truck drivers, conservation officers, politicians, and housewives. We span every race, every religion, and every socioeconomic level. In talking with hundreds, perhaps thousands of abductees throughout the United States, I have found that we are fairly representative of the population at large. So keep in mind, R.J. Reynolds, that abductees are just real people with abnormal experiences. And by the way, some of us are even smart enough to have never started smoking. Well, yes, I know that it's true. Nothing she says is is false, but... It's the level of peevishness is, is up there with, with when I was younger and used to, to very earnestly tell people that, that Doctor Who is the name of the show, not the name of the character, stuff like that. It, it just sounds a little, well, actually, it's a joke. It's a joke. But I guess if I was the one having the experiences, I wouldn't find it very funny either. At the conclusion of the book, Leah Haley presents the following. One of the most fundamental truths I've learned is that the alien phenomena is matrixical. It is contained within a complex network of elements. It is not just physical craft that come from other planets. It is not just physical non-human beings who communicate with and conduct medical experiments on humans. Minds, souls, and spirits are also involved. Both physical and spiritual beings are involved. Realms other than Earth are involved. And it seems that other dimensions we cannot yet comprehend are parts of the phenomenon. The elements are intertwined within two opposing sets of forces. The way these forces work against each other reminds me of the movie Star Wars. In our reality, the dark side is made up of Omags, Cheops, and other humans who are predominantly evil. They work with malevolent aliens and evil spirits. They use mind control, government cover-up, debunking, ridicule, threats, torture, and ruin as weapons. Satan is their leader. On the other hand, the Force is composed of predominantly good humans who work with benevolent aliens and good spirits. Their primary goal is to promote and uphold the principles of righteousness and truth. God is their leader. My findings confirm what I suspected a decade ago. A spiritual war is taking place on Earth. Alien experimenters and Cheops experimenters are right in the line of fire. Our immortal souls are the spoils of war. Only by following God's commandments can we ensure the survival of our souls. We must do unto others as we would have others do unto us. May God bless all those who fight for righteousness and truth. So 
This is a roller coaster, isn't it? Two sides locked in conflict, one good, one evil, the devil, God, aliens, spirits involved, a whole lot of helpless people trapped in the middle, very, very confused. The, the religion aspect is, is sort of sprinkled throughout the book. It's not something that, that sort of comes on all at once. Um, it, it may have seemed like that from the way I presented it here just because we only have a limited amount of time to work with, and I didn't want this to be a Leah Haley audiobook presentation. But if you, um, if you go look at the, the presentation that she gave in 2004 that the sound clip earlier and one in a little bit come from, she talks about uh, her relationship to religion and sort of reconciling her, her Southern Baptist upbringing with, uh, with her experiences. So one last thing, one aspect of this story that Haley discusses in Unlocking Alien Closets is what came to be known as the Carpenter Affair. In the mid-1990s, it came to light that John Carpenter, who had been Leah's hypnotist and did not direct They Live, was connected to MUFON, and he was connected to MUFON, had, in quotes, shared his files on 100 abductee, 140 abductees with Robert Bigelow. You've probably heard of Bigelow and his various ufological endeavors over the years, so I won't really spend any time on him here. But it turns out that this was not simply the sharing of data or information. Carpenter had been selling the information to Bigelow without the knowledge of those abductees. Now, of course, Carpenter didn't see it like that and maintained that any money Bigelow paid was for expenses. But honestly, if I give you something and you give me money, that's selling. Haley and some of the other 140 abductees looked into legal proceedings against Carpenter, and in 1997, Carpenter's lawyer, William Stoner, responded to the concerns that Carpenter had improperly sold or even shared therapeutic medical records. For a number of years, Mr. Carpenter has collected and investigated personal accounts of experiences with UFOs and aliens. In recent years, he's appeared on discussion panels and as a guest speaker in places as diverse as Brazil, Australia, England, Mexico, Canada, and all over the United States. He's appeared on television to include the Montel Williams Show. He was recently quoted in Time Magazine in their articles regarding the 50th anniversary of the Roswell, New Mexico incident. People contact him frequently and voluntarily and eagerly seek his ear to tell their stories. His collection of data is for his own personal pleasure as a hobby and as an interesting study. He does not do it for compensation. Sometimes people with whom he comes in contact help defray the costs by paying his expenses or buying the cassette tapes. Now, the first part of this is entirely irrelevant and, and seems to be, if it's, it's meant to do anything at all other than annoy me, it's, it's solely for the purpose of establishing that Carpenter has a non-professional, non-therapeutic interest in these UFO stories. He just, he just collects them, you know, like baseball cards or, or, you know, model trains or people's testimony under hypnosis about how they were experimented upon, right? Um... It's, it's, just, it's just a hobby. It's, it's not professional. It's not therapeutic. So the second part of the paragraph, um, his collection of data is for his own personal pleasure as a hobby and interesting study. It's, it's just part of this goofy UFO thing. He gives lectures. He finds it interesting. He went on a Montel. Now, the final point about him not doing it for compensation, just, you know, abductees will give him blank tapes like they're trading concert bootlegs or something. I'm very old. Um, it seems to uh, slightly, well, 
understating it really, it seems to directly contradict what Carpenter himself stated in a 1994 edition of a newsletter he, um, he sent out to, uh, to, to people he was connected with. Carpenter shifts offices and gains professional support. Well, the years of meeting witnesses first on a dark parking lot behind an aging brick building and then in a borrowed office from a wonderful colleague to do hypnosis sessions late into the evening on a reclining lawn chair covered by a sleeping bag are over. Because John Carpenter transferred his professional work from the Marion Center after 12 years to the newly formed Center for Neuropsychiatry promoting John's clinical hypnosis practice and supporting openly his research into anomalous trauma, UFO abductions, the Center for Neuropsychiatry is comprised of three other mental health experts, Dr. Sam Caputo, psychiatrist, Dr. Rose Buckner, psychologist, and Sixto Estepare, clinical social worker. This is such a welcome and progressive step in the recognition of UFO research as an important professional concern regarding those who have suffered quietly for years without help or any idea of where to go for respectable assistance. The bad news is that there can be no more free hypnosis sessions. However, there is good news. Payment plans are possible and medical insurance may indeed cover your sessions. Even Visa and MasterCard charges are allowed. Cost is $65 for the session, even if the session lasts three or four hours. That's still a bargain. Okay, that doesn't sound like a hobby. That sounds like, uh, I don't know, the recognition of UFO research as an important professional concern. And the rates being charged don't sound like love offerings or audio tape purchases. It sounds like a set price you're required to pay if you want to do this. And I'm pretty sure there's zero chance someone's medical insurance would cover a hypnosis session that was for the hypnotist's own personal pleasure as a hobby and an interesting study. Now, to be very, very fair, he frames this very, very carefully. This was in 1994. He says, there are no more free hypnosis sessions, indicating that before he moved to this new building in 94, they would have been free hypnosis sessions. And if they were free, they weren't therapeutic or clinical or anything. It, it, it's, you know, I don't know. The, the lawsuit went nowhere. So clearly the letter of the law must not have been a problem for Carpenter. But still, it left a bad taste in people's mouths and was hardly the first um, or only concern about MUFON and people connected to MUFON um, sharing or selling data about sightings, experiences, abductions, things like that with other entities, including, uh, including Robert Bigelow's organization. And can I just say, starting all this off with the years of meeting witnesses on a, in a dark parking lot behind an aging brick building doesn't sound shifty at all, right? I know he's trying to be self-deprecating or something, but I don't know. It's just, wow. So there's more to this, that the connection between investigators connected to MUFON and, and Bigelow, as I said. And you may know that one of the people involved and connected to, to Bigelow and his organization is John Alexander, who's been active in researching non-lethal weaponry. And one example of the non-lethal weaponry that, that Alexander and people like him worked on was something called the Sticky Shocker. Uh, think of it as a particularly nasty taser. Here's Leah talking about it during her 2004 lecture. This is called a sticky shocker. What it is is a non-lethal weapon used by law enforcement officers and military personnel. It uses stun gun technology 
on a wireless self-contained projectile. The projectile carries a battery pack and associated electronics that will impart a short burst of high voltage pulses and it is used to disable a human. Notice that it has short barbs on the end of it, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six barbs around it. These barbs are put on the end of this thing in order to penetrate thick clothing that a human being might be wearing. I fully believe that that is what is responsible for making this mark on my back. Notice I had punctures on my back, barbs on the sticky shocker align with, with the punctures on my back. So in her book, when she talks about these marks that she finds on her body after her abduction encounters or after her other visions and things like that, by the time we get to the late 1990s, early 21st century, she's beginning to put together that this might not be extraterrestrial, that this might also be human in nature, uh, specifically examples of the non-lethal technology like the kitchen timer thing that she found on the beach. And by 2011, uh, when Leah Haley was in conversation with writer Jack Brewer of the UFO Trail blog, she had moved away from an extraterrestrial explanation of her experiences almost entirely, saying, quote, the most important thing about my case is that my memories were of alien abductions and that after spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and years and years and years of research trying to find evidence that alien abductions have occurred, the only evidence I found is of human instigated mind control, end quote. Pointing to many of the same things that we've seen in episodes of this show, there is ample documentation that the U.S. government has experimented, experienced, experimented with technology that could produce many of the same effects that abductees report. Now, I'm not saying this negates what they've experienced or eliminates the possibility of alien contact. Rather, I think it's important to remember that there may be more than one thing going on here. I have links to Jack Brewer's posts at his uh, UFO trail site, as well as a link to his book, The Greys Have Been Framed, Exploitation in the UFO Community. He goes into way more depth on this stuff than I have because he's way more patient than I am, probably. So what are we to make of Leah Haley's story? I don't know. And deep down, I don't think she does either. Now, she may have good reason to believe she's been harassed by government entities of one variety or another, but the deeper purpose is, is still fairly elusive. Her 2004 MUFON talk, from which I've shared clips, is available on YouTube, and I've put the link in the show notes. The comments, as always on YouTube, are, are something else. And often we can get the pulse of a, a community that's out there by taking a peek at how they respond to someone especially someone who presents their story in such a straightforward way, such as a, such a, and you can call me a sucker here, who presents her story in such a credible way. So here's some examples of the comments. What I would like to know is if there's a treaty signed between the extraterrestrials and the American president in regards to technology for human abduction, if that only applied to American citizens or if other governments of the world have also done the same thing as there have been human abductions reported all over the world. Not that that would make a difference, as I'm sure the extraterrestrials could go on about their business as there really isn't much anyone or governments could do about that anyway. Yes, thank you, sir. Entirely irrelevant to almost anything she was talking about. Here's one who's a little more skeptical. Any evidence here, again? Lie detector done? Polygraph? 
There's loads and loads of this stuff going around. I mean, seriously. Anyone can go up to these podiums and name drop and ramble on and on without any proof. Thank you, sir. Very helpful. Very enlightening. So that person was a little too skeptical. Uh, this person is not skeptical enough. The real truth sleuthing about this phenomenon is with alien abduction researcher Dr. David Jacobs and his insightful lectures. Thank you, Dr. Jacobs, for your sock puppet's contribution to this conversation. Also, the two-word phrase, truth sleuthing, should never be written anywhere because it's almost impossible to say without sounding like you've been punched in the face. Here's another comment that is a little strange, a little vague, a little oblique, but I wonder if there's something to it. Husband working away from home is a dead giveaway that she is being abducted. It's not a coincidence. It's a pattern. And in true Goldilocks fashion, where we had one person very skeptical, one person not very skeptical at all, um, we have this. I'm surprised they didn't kill her for speaking the truth. Or was she a paranoid and imagined all of it? I don't know. Is there a more enlightening and magical place than a YouTube comments section? Um, I can think of two, one of which is a condemned slaughterhouse, and uh, the other is too horrible to speak out loud. In the end, Leah Haley strikes me as a as credible a credible person in the sense that I believe she experienced something like like the best of the contactees or at least my favorite contactees like Orfeo Angelucci for example I just, I just have a feeling of confidence that this isn't entirely made up she certainly the judge from from interviews not made massive amounts of money off this I've got no reason to pull out my Jane Pauley soundbite here. Again, I urge you to read Jack Brewer's materials on this, including his interview with Haley. Um, this is a saucer life. Hers is a saucer life that, that was strange, had been, has been, hopefully not continuing to be strange and disturbing, even if there weren't any saucers involved at all. Maybe especially because there might not have been any saucers involved at all. Thanks for listening. In the show notes, you can find links to the books we discussed today. Leah Haley's books seem to be fairly available on the secondary market. I'm indebted to Jack Brewer for the extensive work he's done on MUFON's complicity in some of these things, as well as The Carpenter Affair. There are links to some of his work that was particularly helpful in the show notes. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. And the Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.